0: Welcome to Taiwan on Air, Taiwan. Hello, everyone. This is Lara Momesso, one of the hosts of this podcast series, and today we are here for the director chat. Today's guest is Asio Liu, a prolific and well-known Taiwanese documentary movie director. Welcome to our director chat podcast, Asio.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Asio Liu Ji from Taiwan. I'm not a native English speaker, so please don't mind. But although we might speak different languages, I hope the language won't be our barrier to understand each other. So uh, please be patient and I will try my best to tell the stories in my limited knowledge. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Asio. Above all, thank you for agreeing to be with us today. So let me first introduce you to our audience. Asio majored in philosophy at National Gender University, and he was a copywriter some time ago, but he is best known for directing movies. Let me mention just a few of his works. Under his name, we have the biographical documentary on Juan Haidai, the legendary godfather of Taiwanese puppetry, born in 1901. In 2007, he directed a documentary movie, Exotic Exoticism, officially screened in 2009 at the Museum of Modern Art, New York. Also, his movie Quiet Summer was selected at the Philadelphia International Film Festival. And one of his latest works, Journey to the Promised Island, was included in an archive of the exhibition histories of nine Asian countries in the Asia Culture Center Library Program in Korea. Asio also produced various experimental films, such as And She Wasn't, in 2001, co-directed with Ai Weiwei, Liu, which was shown at the Sundance Film Festival in 2001. Very recently, he screened Somewhere Unknown in Indochina, which was screened at the Venice Film Festival in 2022. Just after this event in Venice, ASIO came to Ukraine in Preston and screened a part of his trilogy on the Vietnamese refugee camps in Penhu. And today we will be speaking about this trilogy. So let me share the titles first. One is Place of Exception, Unknown Penghu Vietnamese Refugee Camps in the Taiwan Strait. One is Jinliu Liu Dao, and the other is Refugee Boats to Penghu. So let's provide a bit of background about the refugee camps in Penhu Island, because I guess that a majority of people actually don't know about it. So we are at the end of the Second Indochina War, 1975, a conflict that involved the U.S.-supported South Vietnamese government against the North Vietnamese communists and the People's Army of Vietnam in Vietnam but it also expanded to Cambodia against the Khmer Rouge and in Laos against the Pathet Lao. The war concluded in 1975 with the communist victory over the U.S. in Vietnam and the establishment of the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. What happened in the following years is well known to most of us. An outflow of people, one of the major international refugee problems of those times, started from the coasts of Vietnam. Only in the first three years, more than 1 million people departed, and overall more than 3.5 million people have been resettled in the two decades that followed the end of the war. These refugees were mainly people associated with the previous pro-U.S. government and Sino-Vietnamese entrepreneurs. A majority left in the first three years when the U.S committed to contain the expansion of communism in Asia, tried to accommodate these refugees through a resettlement to U.S. and other Western countries. So today we have communities of ex-Vietnamese refugees in Canada, Australia, England, Belgium, Denmark, and so on and so forth. So these refugees, before reaching these third countries, left often via boats to neighboring countries, so-called first asylum countries, such as Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and also the Philippines. So if we check the statistics, we see that by March 1982, Malaysia accepted 8,000 Vietnamese refugees, Indonesia 7,000, Hong Kong more than 10,000. Thailand, more than 180,000, and most of them arrived actually via land, crossing the Laos Vietnamese border. After 1981, the situation had become so unbearable for these first asylum countries that a series of limitations were imposed and a screening of the refugee population started to be put in place. But this is another story. It is also important to note that these journeys were very dangerous and many people died in the process. And there is just an estimate, about 500,000 people died or were killed by pirates in this process. So the story I've shared now is well known to contemporaries. What we don't know, though, is the story that you tell us, Asio, in your trilogy. So Asio, I will pass the microphone to you now. What is this trilogy about and how you ended up embarking in this project, an unexpectedly long-term project?
1: Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me again in this program. The main topic of the trilogy is about the unknown Penghu refugee camps. There were two Indo-Chinese refugee camps in Penghu, and Penghu is a group of island archipelago in the Taiwan Strait. And the Taiwan Strait is, in fact, a very narrow strait which separates Taiwan from the Asia continent. And the other shore of the strait is the mainland China, PRC China. The refugee camps in Penghu is not officially listed and included in the UN's records for the global refugees. The reason is that Taiwan is not a member of the United Nations because of the so-called One China policy. So even though we have accommodated more than 2,000 refugees during 1977 to 1988, those records are not officially included in the UN. So basically, the stories of these refugee people during these 12 years are totally forgotten by the world. So sometimes my interviewee in the US or in the Europe will tell me they will meet their Vietnamese friends from other refugee camps in Southeast Asia, but none of them from Taiwan. So sometimes they cannot explain themselves to their friends what happened in their refugee camps in Taiwan. So that's one of the reasons that I want to shoot the trilogy of the forgotten Indo-Chinese refugees in the Penghu refugee camps. Right now, the trilogy is composed of two feature documentaries, and one experimental short film. As for the feature documentaries, there will be two episodes of the feature documentaries, and the differences of the two episodes are the main characters. The main characters in episode one are the camps, not the boat people. It might look to be an impersonal documentary because When I am talking about the impersonal, I'm trying to compose the story in the film in the point of the camps instead of the people. But I know most audiences are more familiar with stories of people because we're human beings, right? So in the episode two, I will focus on stories of people. And as for the experimental short film, it is, in fact, deals with the origin of my Penghu refugee project. And the experimental short film is about my dreams of the refugee camps. And those dreams are what triggered me to shoot the project in these 10 years.
0: So Asio, can you tell us a bit more about this dream? What is it about? What is the role of the dream in the story you are telling us?
1: There's a non-Cambodian girl, and she is a victim of the Khmer Rouge. And uh, in dreams, she asked me a question. She said, have you ever been there? And of course, I didn't know what she's talking about. What does she mean by there, right? And also in that, when she asked me, have you ever been there? There's another term in the dream. I feel like something she's talking about is about refugees. I don't know why, but I just know it. But when I woke up from the dream, I thought it is only a dream. So I did nothing at all. And it was a long time ago. It was into 1995 in last century. But after seven to eight years later, in 2003, I had another dream. And the girl revealed herself again. And she said, the refugee camp is to be demolished next month. And in the third dream, there are many, many broken umbrellas scattered on the ground and a seasonal wind came and the wind takes all of the broken umbrella away. When I woke up, I thought, why she came to me for the third time after seven years? So I think I have to, even though I don't feel any related to what she talks, but since she came to me for the third time and she talks about the same thing about the refugee camp. So even though I didn't know what it is, or what they are, I have to ask. And then when I started to ask, I did find there were a refugee camp in Penghu. So I grabbed my camera took Penghu to shoot the last scene of the refugee camp. And then after that, the camp had been demolished. So these three dreams are all told by the unknown Cambodian girl. And who is she? I don't know. But she did take me to find what it is on earth. And then at this time, I have uh, found 26 to 27 refugee boats accommodating the Penghu camp.
0: Good. Thank you very much, Asio. And thank you for sharing this detail. The dream, right, is something that fascinated me since the very beginning when I met you, the first time you started to talk about your movies. So the dream, you don't look at it in a transcendental way that you call superstition. But uh, in in rational terms, through Durkheim's idea of collective consciousness, can you say a bit more on how you look at the role of dream in this project and in your life in general in relation to this work?
1: When I had those three dreams in my twenties, something or 30-something, I knew nothing about the refugees. I knew nothing about Indochina. I knew nothing about Vietnam, nothing about Cambodia, nothing about Laos. So it did stop me to explore more of the stories because I didn't feel connected with the story. And when I think of the collective unconsciousness, I think it in a way of Carl Jung, a psychoanalyst. So I think it is a different idea of collective unconsciousness versus collective consciousness. I think all human beings, we have a a collective unconsciousness And that collective unconsciousness is not our personal unconsciousness in my dream. And that is what Carl Jung is trying to have more development in psychoanalysis with Freud. So when we're talking about the idea of the psychoanalysis for Freud and for Jung are quite different. And for me... Or Jung focuses on the collective unconsciousness, and that idea will be the key insight for me in my dream. When we're talking about the so-called collective unconsciousness, I will categorize that idea into some kind of philosophy of the One. I mean, when we think about the world as One, that will be another approach or another way to understand the world in contrary to the traditional Western philosophy. When we are talking about the epistemology in recent Western philosophy, usually we will presuppose a subject as ourself and an object as the world. But in fact, when we try to separate ourselves from the world, the world is not one. But in another way, in another way to to talk about the philosophy, when we think the world as one, we want to separate ourselves from the object we're trying to understand. For instance, when we treat our nature to be our subject, the nature would be something that we want to conquer. That nature will be something we want to so-called discover. But I don't think it is the right way for us to think about the nature. Because we human beings are part of the nature, right? Nature is not something that we have to conquer. We are part of it. So I think it is not something we have to conquer. It is something we have to live in with it. So that would be one dimension of the philosophy of the one in my idea. So let's bring it back to the story of the refugees. I try to convey that there is a way for me as a Taiwanese people to feel the collective unconsciousness and collected history with Southeast Asia in 1970s and 1980s. And before that, I really don't feel there's any connection or any related for me. But during these 20 years journey, now I think I feel more connected and related to those collective unconsciousness and the collective history of Taiwan, Asia, and East Asia, and all of the world.
0: It is really, really fascinating, this link between reality, dream, the self, and the world around it. So I always like to engage in discussions about this with you in particular. So Asio, what kind of data did you use to develop your movie, and how did you find it? Some of them are
1: documents that I Googled on the internet, and some of them I found them in the library. But there are many things that were not written in any document. So I have to find some people. I have to find anyone who might know the refugees in the refugee camp. So in the beginning, I only found two refugees in Penghu, and there were two ladies residing in Penghu, and one of the ladies has the way. But another lady is still residing in Penghu. Even though I found two refugees, they could not tell a complete story of their own because they are not writers and uh, they have their oral history. But for me, they cannot conclude everything of their stories. For instance, one of the two ladies in Penghu could not remember when their boat arrived in the Penghu camp. So I have to find other way to identify or to know what happened on their boats and when did they really arrive in Penghu and Taiwan. I tried to find our newspapers in the library and uh, I tried to reach the journalist who wrote the stories on the newspapers. And I did find one of them and then two of them. And then there were some cases involving with some lawyers. So I tried to find the lawyers. So those journalists in the 1980s and lawyers in the 1980s gave me their documents and their photos at that time. So basically, the way I try to compose the story is that I have to do my research, and I find some people who have ever been through the camps. And then, with the help of them, I set up a simple website in social media. And some refugees searched the info and they tried to connect me, even though they are now in the US. So, by doing that, we started to get connected. In the beginning, only one refugee boat, and then two and three. And now I have already connected with nearly 26 refugee boats. Basically, now I have a general view of the Penghu refugee camp. In there, operation during 1977 to
0: 1988. Thank you, Asio. The description you give to us uh, reflects a very rich collection of data from very different sources. I would like to reflect a little bit about the people, the human side of your research, because there is this opposition between remembering and erasing that seem to be an important feature of your project. You are creating a memory of something that has been forgotten and erased, And to do so, you investigated the memories of the refugees in particular. We see also much more data, but as I told you, I want to focus on the human part now. So those refugees very often erased their memories, sometimes also because they didn't want to remember and feel anymore those recollections. How did you negotiate this condition between remembering and erasing, but also emotion and lack of emotion? as a movie maker, when you met with the ex-refugees?
1: I think it's the most difficult question for me (laughs) to answer. I'll put it in another way. Even though right now I'm dealing with the stories of the ex-refugees in the refugee camp. In fact, there are people who are alive, right? There are survivors. When we are facing off the survivors, there will be another picture of the people who unfortunately died at sea. And in most cases, those people are the survivors' family members. When I started to reach them for the first time, usually they were surprised that there's someone who is trying to collect the stories of their refugee boat because they think their stories have been forgotten for a very long time. And when I show them some documents I found in Taiwan, Even their rosters, I've got their names in some archive or documents that I found. So when they see their names were, in fact, included in the roster, they feel surprised. And usually they will feel a little bit comforted because they thought they are totally forgotten by Taiwan. But in fact, their names are kept somewhere in our library. Usually they will thank me for finding that document for them. And then what I try to do is that when I started to have an interview with them, they will say something that they would like to remember. When I compare what they say in the interview with the document that I found in our National Archives, I will have some more questions for them. And sometimes that will remind the refugees to talk about something they thought they had been totally forgotten. I think it is an organic uh, process for me to interview them and invite them to talk about the documents and archival material that I have found. In that organic process, even though they might have forgotten something, they will be triggered by some archive and uh, say something more about their refugee stories at sea. Sometimes I will feel there's a boundary. There's uh, something that I am not quite sure that I can cross. When I'm interviewing some survivors, especially those survivors who have many family members died at sea, I have to be very careful. So it will take maybe two times or three times to make the interview more comfortable or to tell their miserable stories at sea. Sometimes they will erase some memory. So if they insist not to talk about something, I won't push them. I will uh, respect them. If I know there is something crucial, I will talk about that with them, the archival material that I've found. Sometimes they will try to explain to me. But if they chose not to speak anything, I will respect their intention.
0: Thank you, Asio, for sharing with us this very complex and sometimes contradictory process of doing interview, making interviews. There is one last uh, question I would like to ask you, and it's about the aims of your project, because this project has a clear political aim. It is not just about unraveling a hidden story of a group of people who lived in Taiwan for a period of time but it's also about making a claim with regard to Taiwan's past, Taiwan's present, as well as global politics. So can you tell us a bit more about your ambitions, aims with this project?
1: The main characters of my project is the refugees of war. If I may, I would advocate a term such as ROW, refugees of war, in contrary of POW, prisoners of war. When I started, my ambition is to establish a museum for the refugees of wars in Taiwan, in Penghu. But it takes lots of money to build a real museum. But I'm a filmmaker, so my intention will try to build such a museum virtually in virtual reality VR technology at this time. I think it might be the right time for us to rebuild such a refugee camps because of the speed of the internet and because of the development of VR technology. The reason to build such a museum for the ROW, Refugees of War, is that the global refugee is still quite an issue for global history, world history at this time. But it seems to me that those Indo-Chinese refugees in 1970s, in 1980s, The stories of those refugees of war will in fact enlighten us to face the present refugee issues. It will be a very valuable resource for global audience to feel related or to reconnect with the life or stories of refugees of war. And also sometimes we cannot feel related to wars because wars uh, seems to be very far away. But all of a sudden, especially when Russia invades Ukraine, I think we do feel that a war is not so far away. It is just at our door and very close to all of us, especially for Taiwanese people, we are still facing the Communist China at the other side of the Taiwanese Strait. I think it is crucial for us to refresh the stories of the refugees of war. I know there are right now some museums built for immigrants, such as I think there's a migration museum in the UK, and there are some immigration museums in Denmark or in Canada. But it seems that there is still no such a museum, especially focused on the refugees of war. That really surprised me a lot because the world has been evolving after World War I and World War II. And in these recent 100 years and 200 years, there are, in fact, many, many refugees of wars. We will find some museums of wars and we will find some museums of migrations. But it is very difficult for us to find a museum for the refugees of wars. I could not understand. It is very crucial for us to build such a museum in some way. So that is my ambition.
0: It's a very meaningful ambition, Asio. I hope you will succeed. Asio, thank you very much for talking to us about such an engaging, original and stimulating project. The fact that it is in progress because you haven't finished the final draft of your um, three movies, this raises even more curiosity and questions on my side and I'm sure also on the audience side. So how can we follow your work in the next steps?
1: I have set up some social media accounts in the internet. So if any audience is, is interested, please search for the keywords such as Penghu refugee camps. Penghu is spelled as P-E-N-G-H-U. So if you search Penghu refugee camps, I think you will find our website and our social media accounts. I will release my first book and the uh, first episode of documentary in next year, in 2023, because that would mark the 20th anniversary of the demolishment of the Pongu Refugee Camp. So please stay tuned and uh, keep in touch with us online.
0: Thank you, Asio. I hope that many of our listeners have been inspired by this director chat. Keep tuned, as Asio said. And see you next time. Thank you. Bye bye.